0: Telling systems leaders that they have to do the healing work in all of this and that they personally have to do it and they have to create space for their employees, clients, whatever it is, to also heal is like, that's where the revolution happens. This is High Tech High Unboxed, I'm Alec Patton, and today's episode comes to you from Rodrigo Arensebia. Rodrigo, who you got today?
1: Yeah, man, today we got Lindsey Fox from the United Way in Fresno, Madeira counties. Uh, she's the CEO and president there. I, I was just super excited and super elated to, to sit down and talk with her a little bit about what she's learned in her history, working with communities, listening to communities, and, and what we can actually do to help communities heal in this new time. So um, I was super stoked to actually get into the mix and, and, and listen to her. Um, and so hopefully you guys will enjoy it. Now I need to ask, we're an education podcast, United Way is not a school. What was it that made you go, this is an interview I got to do? First of all, I think like education in itself, like K twelve, needs to do a better job of like working collaboratively with their their CBO partners, their community based organizations. And I think there's a lot of lessons learned for K twelve partners and educators at large of what happens outside of the school walls and how we work with our communities. Uh, for me, it was really you know, she has a wealth of knowledge, starting from the policy level all the way down to the practitioner level, uh, mostly in after school programs, but then also bridging into this this community based world. You know, I, I felt like she had such a rich wealth of understanding of what it takes to listen to communities. And so um, the hope is that folks will be able to to listen to what Lindsay is sharing and and then take some of those practices of of empathetic listening and take them into the communities and help our communities heal. That was uh, the the impetus of, of having this conversation. And how do you two know each other we first met each other um, at Boost, the Boost Collaborative, at the Boost um, Conference a, a couple a couple years back, and we had done some some collaborative work, um, statewide work with uh, my brother's keeper, and so we she had done she had led some of the work with um, the sisters inspiring change, and I was leading some of the work with with the brothers for um, my brother's keeper, and and we had some collaborative working in, in that space, and and since then, man, it's been it's been really awesome to see you know, how she's actually impacting that Fresno Bonera er- area, you know, it's not a super diverse community and her being one of the leaders of color, a few leaders of color, few women leaders of color in that space, you know, I felt like it was one of the voices that we, we definitely need to, to elevate for sure. Cool. All right, let's roll it.
0: My name is Lindsay Fox. I am honored to serve as the president and CEO of United Way, Fresno and Madera counties. I was raised in the Fresno area, actually in the rural Fresno County, um, not actually in Fresno, but in, in out in the rural part of Fresno County. And there's, there's stories behind that that I'll come back to um, that really kind of made me who I am and spent about, um, gosh... I guess it was about 10 years in the Sacramento area, which was where I really got into policy, which is the, the love of my life, and um, after school programs, which is the second love of, of my life. And my goal has always been about improving community. And I was raised by a couple of educators, an elementary school teacher, and my dad was the dean of students at Fresno City College. And so education was always the sort of lens that I look through things on. I spent a lot of time with my parents on their school campuses and really came to understand, You know, I'll never forget when I was in fifth or sixth grade, my mom was a fifth or sixth grade teacher. So the kids in her class were my age and they were Mm -hmm. my friends, like they were my cohorts. I went to school in a completely different context. So I went to school in Clovis Unified. She was teaching in Southeast Fresno And I remember going, I can't ever tell this story without crying. So I remember being at school and it wasn't the first time I'd been at school with her because I was at school with her all the time. But I, for some reason, the kids being my age was one day, I just had this realization that there was a system that was in place that was inherently inequitable and that the education that I was receiving not that far away from where they were, it, but seemed light years difference. It seemed like we were in different countries, but we were in the same county, maybe five or six miles away from each other. Wow. And I was getting to experience their education firsthand because my mom was teaching year round school and I was off for the summer. And at that moment in time, as you know, a 11 or 12 year old, I was like, this isn't right. <laughs> I, and not only is this like, not only is this not right, it seems like it's a really, really big problem. And I'm going to have to do something about this problem. My job on this earth was to fix it. Mm. And, you know, there's so many like points in time where you, you see things like kind of come to fruition and things like come full, like full circle and things like that. And so, you know, today, the office that I run my United way is like a stone's throw from my mom's old school. Oh, wow. So it's like, that's, this is where I was meant to be. Um, yeah. And I would never, like, I couldn't, I, when I was, I didn't know when I was 11 that there was such thing as United way CEO. Like I didn't, know <laughs> that. I didn't know that there was this whole like yeah. state system, the support. I didn't know how the education system worked. I didn't know any of that, but I had a sense that, I didn't want to be a teacher. Like I, I knew I mm. didn't want to be in the classroom. I knew that there was a bigger system that had to be fixed, and that that was what my role was was to try to fix that system.
1: Now, now in in your experience, like I, always, I trip out because you, at a very very young age, you had you had policy experience and being in that policy mix, and that's a that's a long. There's a lot of information and a lot of like teeth cutting that you get in that experience. Is there Something that you can look back on that experience working either within policy that you can um, that was an uh, an important real real kind of a foundational lesson that you got out of just the importance of of listening to the community.
0: <laughs> I I always joke about my experience in the state Capitol working for in the assembly as you know there there were just like some really key lessons that mm. that I learned and and I really like that was that was my job essentially out of college. So it was where wow. I sort of was like learned how to be an employee, learned all of wow. the things about how you interact, how you do your job. And, you know, it's, it's part of what I attribute my hustle to today, because it mm-hmm. is such an intense, fast paced environment. And I was taking on a lot of responsibility for a 22 year old at that time, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of like really like interesting lessons that you learn in that space. Like it's, it's not necessarily fake it till you make it, but the confidence of walking into a space and being like, I belong here mm. as opposed to walking into a space and being like, I'm not sure that I belong here. I'm going to sit in the back of the room. Like I'm going to like creep this Like that kind of, those kinds of lessons get you so far in, in life, but in, in relationship to to so really about this listening to community piece, the biggest lesson that I learned was <laughs> that when the community representatives, so I'm not talking about community members, but those organizations and people who represent the community come into your office talking about what the community needs that's when you like, need to like, start asking a lot of questions. And (laughs) I, I didn't know that at the time, like there was, I had had no interaction really with community-based organizations or advocacy organizations. So, so much of this, this is, is about translation, right? And I don't mean like language translation. I mean, like literally like translating a need to a solution. And so even if you can identify the need, you don't always know that the solution is the right solution once you start working through the details of it. And I was just like, I feel like there's something amiss here, which was part of the reason that I left the state capital because I felt like I needed to be working in a space where I could be more directly connected to Mm. where the rubber met the road on all of this and not feel like I'm sitting up here with all this wood paneling in this, mm. the state capitol and I have no clue what's happening outside. And so when I took on the foundation consortium role, I went to every single county in California because I, I wanted to constantly have that input from multiple sources and to be like validating, right? And to know that the, the solutions really are meeting the needs and even though they won't always be perfect and they won't always meet all the needs that at least we were putting like the, the needs of of people in front of the needs of
1: an organization. Can you talk a little bit more about like, what are some ways that like we can make sure that like the solutions actually meet the needs?
0: What I would say is that what I've learned over the past 22 years that I've been doing this, this work is that number one, like it's iterative. There's not, this isn't the type of thing where you say, okay, Here's what we're going to do. We implement that thing and then we're done. Right. And like we never have to go back. For me, like it's, it's all about the implementation side of things. Right. That often gets ignored in the public policy process. So mm. the implementers are the bureaucrats. And many times we, we ignore that part of it. And that's where the real kind of tensions come in in the details. So it has to be iterative. You have to think about it as a process that's continually mm-hmm. like having to be refreshed. And if you think about like what's happened during COVID and I was looking at a data set the other day and they were like, well, that was before COVID and I'm sure like things are pretty much the same. I'm like, I'm sure they probably aren't. <laughs> yeah.
1: They are absolutely together, not. like,
0: I think I'm going to like not make any decisions until, until I see what the data says after COVID or during COVID, because oh, um, right. we're not after COVID, but during COVID. So that's kind of one way to think about it, because not only is the policy context changing, but the way that people approach the world changes. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and right. so we have to actually adapt to that, right? And, and then the other piece is, is that the listening process people think is going to be really straightforward, right? Like you came and talked to Lindsay and she said that what she really needs is solar paneling on her house. And so you're going to go write a bill and we're going to have solar paneling on like more people's houses. No, 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 no. People's stories and, and what's happening in their lives aren't easily pinpointed to, to a question like, what do you need? Like it's a very, it's, it's a, sometimes it's a 25, 30 minute conversation with strangers right that have just like come up to me and, or we've just started talking to just get their story. And I'm not ever asking them like, what's the solution or what do you need? It's just, this like kind of messy diatribe. And then Mm. our job as policymakers is to say, okay, here's where we are here's the whole sort of mess that they're dealing with. What are the points in that mess that we could maybe start solving for? And then it's coming back to them even in an ideal situation. And what we're trying to set up is more systems where then we're actually centering people in the solutions too. So mm-hmm. it's like, tell me your story, but then like, let's see if this iteration of a policy solution is even suits you. Because mm-hmm. part of what happens is when things don't st- suit us when they're not to our actual user experience we start using them in weird ways that they weren't Mm. intended right and once we start doing that then you have to ask yourself what's wrong with my solution and how do I fix that and it's probably because you didn't really like test it out on the user to see and I think that the the COVID response in in education and for almost any employer has is is kind of like an interesting dynamic around that like to mm, see more. how people actually act in these situations and what they're truly up against it's like oh you're totally using that wrong right like yeah you know, like i i get it like your mask is on but it's under your nose so <laughs> right like you're that's not how the unisaur interface is
1: supposed <laughs> to be the, um... You know, the, it, we talk about a lot about this in the in the in the improvement process. Right. And I think what I'm teasing out here is like listening and like doing empathy interviews and listening deeply is one part of the process. And then there's another part of the process where you're actually asking and then not so much of an interrogation, but more exploratory and questioning. It feels like in education, though, we haven't necessarily gotten to either of those components. Like we're we're, we're doing some of it through like surveys, and like the surveys aren't necessarily great, and the response rates are not are, are terrible. There has to be something about like putting in the investment of spending time talking to people and pulling out the real stories from that. Like that that has to be something that you've seen across the across the board as as beneficial. Yeah.
0: Oh, absolutely. It- it's, it's actually it's my favorite thing to do like it's absolutely my favorite thing to do so part of your question i think is about scaling right so it's yeah. how do you get a system like education or like a united way or like a local government in the mode of just being like that right mm-hmm. and because it can't just be one person doing it it actually has to be built into and cooked into the system and you know, I'm sure that there's some smarter researcher than than me, because I'm not a researcher out there who could kind of tell you like, well, you know, you would need this kind of sampling, this nine number. That's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about more is with some of our programming around our free tax preparation program at United Way, for example, is, you know, like we want you to, you're getting $5,000 back. We want you to spend it wisely, right? So let's, park somebody who's a financial advisor in my lobby so that when you come in and get your taxes done then you can go talk to this financial advisor like we've tried all kinds of iterations of that and finally this year my team actually without me like even influencing them on this have been doing a series of follow-up calls with people to not only ask about their experience with our service, but actually to get more details about Mm. their story so that we can start figuring out like where is the human habit here around these things? And what we've discovered was we want people to act a certain way. And this is very typical of government agencies and big, big organizations. We want people to act a certain way but people in fact act very differently. So we want people to file their taxes when we open on March one. But if I know I'm getting money back, I'm taking my paychecks down at H&R Block and like I'm getting my taxes filed as soon as possible so I can have that money in my pocket. And I didn't decide how to spend it the day that I got it. I decided how to spend it six months ago. Mm. So that's just kind of one example of how, you know, taking something to scale means it can't be me having one-off conversations with our clients. It has to actually be embedded within the system. And then the system has to be able to respond to that. So I've seen many education entities say, like, we want youth voice, right? Like we want youth engagement. So we're going to do this, that, or the other thing to get youth involved and let them present at the beginning of the board meetings and whatever. But if the system actually, if you haven't Cooked it in in a way that one is actually operating at scale, and two, then can truly infuse that into the system to change. It's like, what's the point? Like, don't ask anybody what they think. Then,
1: so we talked to you about the importance of listening to the community, like how can we listen to the communities and learn about what they need to to heal? Because my sense is that your community, just like ours community, is going through a lot of healing right now or trying to go through a lot of healing. Can you share a little bit of of what what y'all are doing in Fresno and, and how you guys are leading some of that work?
0: The work that United Way does has always been centered around things like race equity it's just that we became a little complacent about how important that was and how centralized that was to what was really happening, right? Like we know disproportionate outcomes based on the color of your skin. And during COVID, like we were all like, hey, surprise, guess who is hardest hit by this? And in some ways, you know, covid in public policy, we talk a lot about focusing events and in COVID very much for us, we've treated it as a focusing event for uh, many different things. And one being really about how do we just make racism go away in our community? Right. Um, and how do we we center fighting against racism and fighting for equity again? And you know, that COVID as devastating as it was did open some people's eyes to Mm -hmm. like, Oh, this isn't actually like a cool thing. Like this is, this is worse than what I thought it actually was. And particularly when you look at things like the racial wealth gap, which is what, what our focus is. So in in our work, we have really decided to, to focus on several things. One is, is listening. And so we're spending a lot of time just either listening to ourselves, right? So just like hearing ourselves, like, so internally listening to each other, but then also externally listening to people in the community who are impacted by all of this. And then three, really helping organizations, particularly educational institutions, listen to their students and particularly their black students. And, and that's been like, it some of that work started well before covid so i'm not mm-hmm. i don't want to like discount that like oh all of a sudden like we're right, like right, right. these raised you know we were doing that work before it just it it became the lens changed and it mm-hmm. became became crystal clear and it became the thing that was at the center of everything so one is listening um we're also really focused on learning so as united way we really see that a part of our job is to help educate and give the community resources around just some of the basics Mm. um and and that learning piece is an ongoing piece and really has to be centered on feeding yourself but like i'll bring you the i may bring you the food but you're gonna have to feed yourself because i i really Mm. had this overwhelming response from community leaders like what am i supposed to do like what should i read like give me the book like and there's like there's no one book (laughs) This isn't like, this isn't going to be like a weekend process. This is going to be like, you've got to commit the rest of your life to being on, on this journey because that's what we've committed to. And then the other piece is really about championing and, and making sure that we're using our platform at United way to lift up black leaders, black owned businesses, businesses owned by people of color, Um, people of color who are doing incredible work in different organizations, but have been totally marginalized by our system. Mm. And then the fourth piece. So those three things aren't necessarily revolutionary, right? Like those three things make a lot of sense to every single leader that I talk to about what our agenda is around related to race equity and related to rebuilding after COVID. The fourth piece is where it's like, I'm going to need you all to like, you can sit down. Um, you might need a Kleenex. i like, you're going to have to heal. And, and so telling systems leaders that they have to do the healing work in all of this and that they personally have to do it and they have to create space for their employees, clients, whatever it is to also heal is like that's where the revolution happens right like all of that other stuff has to happen but it's really the focus that we have on healing and making healing a really important part of what we're doing and and what we're trying or at least what we're trying to promote and part of what happened to me I don't even know if I had, I've told you this before but my board had had given me a a, a short sabbatical maybe not really shouldn't be called a sabbatical but after George Floyd was murdered and I had all these white men like calling me, like, I want to do something. Oh, wow. Tell me like how to change my County, tell me how to change my organization. And I'm like, ah, like, I don't know what to like, what? Like, this is a lot right. of pressure. Um, I took a sabbatical and I was like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to develop this plan for my organization. I'm going to update our plan around the work that we're doing related to wealth creation. And I'm going to like, come out with this, with this whole like five year strategy on what we're going to to be doing. But I know that I probably like have some work to do myself. Mm -hmm. So I've got 48 hours. I'll give myself the first 48 hours and those first 48 hours are, are dedicated to me doing my work. That's what I called it to myself at that point. Me doing my work. I think I even wrote it down. Me work. 48 hours. Three and a half weeks later, I'm still doing my work. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, uh, I feel like that I just figure something out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I, yeah. and, and then the realization that I had to go back because the, the community was all wa- like, my, my board was watching me, my staff was watching me and the community was all watching me do this and like waiting for me to come back. And, <sighs> and I, I remember being like, no, 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 like you actually have to own that because that's the part that everyone misses. Yeah. We're not going to destroy this thing if we don't work to fix ourselves. If we don't first deal with all of the things that are broken within ourselves, all of the hurt that we have, all of the stuff that we've done wrong, we've got to deal with all of that first. So yeah, like that's the fourth tenet of what we're doing. And it's, it's the hardest part. It's absolutely the hardest part.
1: This is an, an amazing point that you're bringing up. Like the, We can't do the, the, the actual work until we do the self work and the mirror work. Um, And that polishing of the mirror is as important as any other type of work that we have. So any advice for folks about how you can either systematize or even introduce this concept of healing as a community or healing as a, as an organization?
0: To me, it's about space, right? So it's when you do it on your own, it's about creating that space for yourself to be safe in like oh, let me remember like every relationship that I've had and like <laughs> the nuances of every relationship that I've had. And like, was this about that? And was this about mm-hmm. that? And, and how did all of this play out? And so it's totally doable by yourself. Like get a journal, get some kind of racial trauma he- healing book and just start in on it. And then, you know, for, for leaders or people who are leading teams, it is still creating space. And so, you know, we've done a couple of things. One is with our own team. I think we've been really fortunate to work in a field like youth development that kind of leans into this a little bit more, Mm. that we've had these conversations that we talk about being different. We talk about being leaders of color. We talk about the system and the system being inherently racist. But there are lots of people who look just like you and I. Who no one has ever given them the permission to ever even have the conversation. Oh, and no. it was heartbreaking in my own team to hear, you're the first person who's ever like had this conversation with me. You're the first person who's facilitated this conversation with me. Because I started having the conversations as soon as I left the Capitol and started working at Foundation Consortium. Like I got a crash course in what diverse at the time we called diversity and equity. But that's not happening everywhere. So no. just creating space for people. The other thing that we've done that I think that we're going to do a lot more of is creating space and convening people in safe spaces where they get to be with people who look like them.
1: I want to tie, you mentioned our, our favorite space, the out of school time space, the, the, right. the after school time space as a, as a functional like ecosystem for healing to happen. Can you talk a little bit more about, like, what you've seen in in your experience about how important expanded learning or after school time spaces and how that can be used to help communities heal and students and and teachers and the whole ecosystem heal?
0: Yeah, you know, I think that part of part of the narrative that I would put out on this is the whole reason that I got involved in after school wasn't. Like after school for after school's sake. Like after school for after school's sake is a great thing. Like don't get me wrong, after school's just inherently like a great concept. Like we pull <laughs> the right? But for for me coming from that, you know, to to do the callback, coming from that eleven year old mm. mindset of this thing is totally broken. And when when I came into the after school space, it was. Right as we were like in the throes of No Child Left Behind. So for me, it was less about after school programming and more about after school as a platform to do so many of the things that one, I got in my regular education that kids in Fresno Unified were not getting, mm-hmm. two, that No Child Left Behind was leaving behind, and three, this other like very complex but simple idea around relationships and safe spaces and, and, and and how we learn and how we relate to each other. And that in its highest form and it's in its best form, that's what after school is. It's much less about what the programming is and much more about here's the opportunity for relationships, both with other students who you may not be in class with, but more, more importantly with with an adult and having a caring adult and having an adult mentor who looks like you. you. Because after school programs are generally staffed by people of color. And so where you may go through your whole day, I mean, I went through my almost entire education career K-12 and did not see a, a leader of color or a teacher of color. So if you can exit that and come into this space where it's like, oh, like not only are these people fun, they look like me and like they actually like care about me like that that is actually the secret sauce right. like that is right. what we need more of in our lives is is that because that opens the door to all of the other things that we need to do right So I, I think that after school I learned, I don't work all that much with after school anymore unfortunately but I, I talk about after school and youth development all the time. Right. And especially now when we're doing so much when I have people's ear around this thing about both healing, and we can talk about social emotional learning and this piece around listening and we talk about engagement. Like all of the principles are the same because what I always what I always knew was that even though I didn't work directly with students in after school. I primarily work with the adults. All of this stuff for youth translates for the adults. adults. (laughs) It's all the same stuff. Like we need to listen to them. We need to give them and and like why are you going to expect that the person who was traumatized by the education system and is now an after-school provider and has all this racial trauma all of a sudden like miraculously healed from it and now knows like how to support someone. So like all of this stuff totally translates. And so it becomes a safe place for everyone. Like it, after school is a phenomenal concept. It, it, just calling it after school or out of school time or whatever we're calling it these days, it doesn't seem like it's enough because it needs to be called something else. Hi Tech High Unboxed is hosted by me, Alec Patton. This episode was edited by Brent Spurnack. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. Huge thanks to Rodrigo Arancibia and Lindsay Fox for this conversation. Thanks for listening.